0: If you have your Bibles, um, open up to Mark 10. We're back in Mark if you've been gone the last few weeks. Or if you've been gone the last few months, we're still in Mark. And uh, this week is chapter 10. I'm going to go ahead and read it first, starting in verse 1. And uh, then we can go from there. I will find it. Okay, Mark 10, verse 1. Hopefully you have your phones and you guys can see it, but um, if you can't, just listen up. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him and as was his custom, he taught them. Now some Pharisees came and tested him asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And Jesus said to them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote uh, wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh so they are no longer two but one. Therefore what God has joined together, let no man separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked him about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. So this evening, Uh, if you didn't gather, we are speaking about marriage and divorce. And um, more than any message I've ever preached, i felt kind of wrecked by it this week. The weight, the um, reality of it. Mainly because marriage is not just a theological conversation. It's not purely academic. It is something that, for better or for worse, affects every single one of us here. Maybe it defines our family of origin, our parents' relationship, our own relationships, our own story. And wherever you are, this is a tender point of conversation. And I recognize that. Marriage is not something that is disconnected from the reality in which we live. I have been married to my husband for seven years now, which is not a long time. It's felt long at times, but it's not actually that long. My parents are celebrating 40 in November, which is, I mean, woo, And, um, but but I will tell you this, seven years is long enough. We have one kiddo, another on the way, and it is more than long enough to know that marriage is hard, that commitment is complicated. Seven years is long enough to realize how little you knew about marriage and about your spouse before you got married. Um, It's long enough to realize how selfish I am, Um, how difficult it can be to covenant yourself to someone for life. Um, I love my husband. I'm so grateful to be married to him, but all of those other things are true. And I say all of this because I don't take this lightly. I don't take this without understanding. And can I say that wherever you are in your journey, single, dating, engaged, married, divorced, Remarried. Wherever you find yourself, there is truth and there is life in this passage this evening. And so I want to approach the text with an awareness of how tender this kind of topic can be. And I also want to ground us in the revelation that we serve a God of love and compassion and grace. Friends, there is actually something, the more time I've spent with it this week, there is actually something really beautiful in this text something hopeful, something we can trust. And that is the path I want us to follow tonight. It's a path that has good news. It's a path that more than any other points to Jesus. It's a path paved by His love and His commitment and His covenant and His grace and His mercy and His sacrifice for us. And my deepest desire, if you walk away with nothing else, I hope that you have a a, a more true, a more profound understanding of Jesus and what it means for you and I to be his bride. So what's going on here? If you ever come to the Bible, whether you're new to it or raised in the church, if you ever come to the Bible and you go, what the heck is happening? You are not alone. Um, The Bible was written, uh, the New Testament especially, for first century Jews. As far as I know, that includes none of us. And so there's always context, there's always background. This verse is a case in point. And here's the background. In Deuteronomy 24, which is in the Old Testament, it's in the law or the Jewish Bible, there is a passage of scripture where Moses, the leader of the Israelites, wrote that a man may issue a certificate of divorce if his wife, and I quote, becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, end quote, okay? That's the scripture. That's, that's it in its entirety. And that's what Jesus and the Pharisees are referencing. now. It had been long contested by the religious leaders what exactly Moses meant when he said indecent, right, or displeasing. Essentially, what are the grounds for divorce? Now, I want to point out that most scholars would agree that passage in Deuteronomy is not about what are the grounds for divorce. It's actually about the fact that in ancient cultures, a man man could cast away his wife kind of on any whim. And so Moses wrote this in, um, which demanded that men go through the legal and binding process of giving her a divorce so that she could remarry and not just be cast aside. Okay, That's what the original provision was for. However, this had become a, a widely contested debate about what are the grounds for divorce. And there were two dominant schools of thought in the first century. The first was by a rabbi, Shammai, and he said that indecent referred to uh, infidelity or adultery, right? So it was this idea, if your wife had been unfaithful to you, then you could divorce her. That was the more kind of conservative view. The second was more progressive. It was by a rabbi named Hillel, and um, he said indecent meant, and I'm quoting, Matthew actually uses this phrase, for any and every reason. So if she, her behavior became indecent, if you suddenly found her looks indecent, uh, if you found her cooking skills indecent, which sounds ridiculous, but we have records of him saying, and I quote, if she consistently burns the bread, divorce her. If you fall out of love with her, divorce her. If you fall in love with someone else, divorce her. Okay. End quote. I've burnt bread many a day in my time. Thankfully, this no longer applies. Um, But as you can imagine, in a patriarchal society, which do you think was the preferred uh, argument? Right, The second one. Any reason, whenever I want to, I can just get rid of my wife and get a new one. What I want us to recognize is that we often think of divorce as a modern invention. It's not. It was just as culturally normative then as it is today. But not only was it culturally normative, it was religiously condoned. The rabbis, the spiritual leaders of the day said, totally fine, you can get rid of your wife for whatever reason you want. If you remember um, Herod and John the Baptist, right, he he, um, publicly condemns Herod. What did Herod do? He divorced his wife so that he could marry his brother's wife, his sister-in-law, which is so weird on so many levels. Um, But Herod beheaded John the Baptist because, according to the rabbis, Herod was fully in his rights to do just what he did. And so the Pharisees come to Jesus with somewhat of a trick question. They're hoping that he disagrees with the commonly held uh, belief. And then maybe, if they're lucky, Herod will lop off his head as well. But Jesus, what does he do? He he does what he so often does. He sidesteps it and he turns it back on the Pharisees because essentially, what are they asking, right? They're asking, what does the law allow us to do? Or to put it more bluntly, what can we get away with? How far can we push this kind of vague indecency allowed by Moses? This is a weird example, but I was laughing thinking about it this week. You know when you were a kid and uh, you're kind of fighting or pinching or something with your brother and sister, and your parents invariably said, stop touching each other, right? You're in the back car and you're like, "Just, just stop touching each other. And if you were anything like me, I would get this close to my sister and I would go, I'm not touching you, I'm not touching you, I'm not touching. That's the childish version of what's happening here. They want to know how close can we get to the line without crossing it. And that foundational inclination within us as human beings, right, to get as close as we can without actually going beyond, we carry that into adulthood. We, we carry that into how we approach the Bible. You see, for the Pharisees, the Bible had become a list of laws and rules and things that they could and couldn't do. And for many of us today, that's how we approach the text. Rules, regulations, do's, don'ts. And we can either obey kind of the A student, we do everything according to the rules, or we kind of weasel our way around it, getting as close to that line but never crossing it. And this methodology for you and I in our kind of modern world often sounds like this. Where does the Bible explicitly say that you can't whatever fill in the blank? Where does the Bible say that sexual intimacy is just within the confines of marriage? Where does the Bible say even what sex really is and what we can and can't do? Well, I don't think I have to give a tithe or give my finances over to God. Um, I I don't really think it's gossip, it's more like girl talk, right? We, 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 We blur the edges because essentially what we are asking is do I really have to, does it even matter, and did God really say? Did God really say? You remember that question? That's the question that Satan asks Eve at the fall of mankind. Did God really say? But Jesus, what does he do? He doesn't give them a list of reasons why they can and can't. Instead, Jesus takes them back to the garden He takes them back to the start, the most perfect moments of creation, Genesis 1 and 2. Tim Mackey, a theologian and pastor up in Portland behind the Bible Project, he says that Jesus here is actually going underneath the law to the divine ideal the divine ideal, that that this passage by Moses that that kind of gave this allowance was a divine accommodation for human sinfulness, i.e. God in his mercy gives us divine allowances because we are fallen human beings, but that accommodation represents God's permissive will, not his perfect will. But in the beginning, Jesus says, it was not this way. And what I want us to recognize is the significance that the law should not be the thing that defines our actions, but rather God's divine ideal, i.e. at the beginning, God's original intent. He did not begin by saying thou shalt not steal. Right? What did he do? He gave them a garden that provided for every single need. There was no need to steal in the Garden of Eden because they had everything. But then when mankind fell, thou shalt not steal. The same with murder, the same with lust, the same with envy. It did not begin with the command. The command was the instruction based on us. It was never God's intention. And I want us to understand that because this isn't God changing his mind. He's suddenly like, well, actually, I I don't approve of divorce. What he is saying is as a creator, I have made you and I never intended for you to experience the pain and the separation and the relational havoc of divorce. I have walked through this with friends both in their family of origin, parents who separated, as well as friends who have gotten divorced, and none of them would say that was the ideal. None of them would say that they would, would, would desire to go through that again. None of them would wish that on anyone else. The pain, the heartache, the years of, of learning to restore trust, the, the, the years of, of healing, where, where something that was meant to be one has been torn apart. That that separation, it's, it's hard on our souls and we were never meant to endure it. And so Jesus is saying, the primary question does not begin with divorce. The primary question begins with the intent of God. What did God make us for? Why did he make us? What were his divine intentions for you and I as imago Dei, as the image bearers of God? Why did he make us as emotional and sexual beings? Why did he give us this desire to to love, to commit, to experience physical and emotional intimacy with another human being? Did he create us for pain and suffering and, and, and separation? Or did he intend, when we look at Genesis 1 and 2, that we would live in perfect safety that we would live in perfect peace. I love when Genesis says they were naked and unafraid. To me that is the most counter the modern world that, that, that I could even imagine. Being, being completely naked, completely exposed, without insecurity, without fear, without the threat of violation, without the threat of, of, of anything completely unafraid, and what I wanna say to us this evening is that when divine intent stops being our starting and ending point, we lose sight of, of what this is even all about. And spirituality and faith, it becomes this list of rules and regulations and things we have to do and shouldn't do and can't do. And then we get to that place where we're we're getting so close to the line and we're just not crossing it and I'm sure God's okay with it. And ultimately, we end up in a place of guilt and shame because we were never intended to live in the accommodation. We were intended to live in the divine and perfect will of God. Friends, when when the divine intent is our fixed mark, our true north, that, that point on the compass that we keep bringing ourselves back to, then any question we come up against, whether it's divorce or anything else, it is answered through, what did God intend for me? What did God intend for you? And our faith looks so remarkably different. This goes beyond marriage. This goes to the very foundation of what it means to be a people of God because my Creator says I was made to be loved by God and to love Him in return. My Creator said I was made to love others because I've experienced the fullness of God's love for me. My Creator says I was made for generosity because God has provided everything that I need. I was made for peace because He is the Prince of Peace. I was made for grace and compassion and mercy because that is who God is. As an image bearer, I was created to embody his divine and perfect will. And it is in relationships, particularly marriage, that we need this conviction more than perhaps any other space because marriage exposes us marriage makes us vulnerable marriage shows our selfishness our maybe not it shows mine my selfishness my pride the ways that i seek to justify and control and, and to be right and to be the one in power i often joke with my husband's do that i was perfect before we met um, i was pretty close but uh, no I wasn't, but when you're single and or you're not in an intimate relationship, there is so much that you can be blissfully aware of. And then suddenly you spend every day with someone and, and, and your, your soul and, and kind of ugly stuff starts to get exposed. And if I don't think about my marriage through the lenses of what God intended for intimacy, what God intended for covenant, then it begins to be about the problem that he has created for my life. I was perfect before him and now all of a sudden there's all kinds of mess and maybe if he wasn't there that wouldn't exist. Can I also just say that marriage is, the divine ideal God intended is different from the human ideal. My ideal marriage looks different from the marriage that God has intended for me. Does that make sense? And so he takes us back to Genesis. What does it look like there? What does it look like in perfect company? I read um, an article this week by a, um, oh gosh, I can't remember his name, Um, a secular uh, kind of commentator, and he said, everyone marries the wrong person. And I thought it was such a funny phrase because the reality is I was so sure that we were perfect for each other. And then you get married and over time you start to go, huh? Not so sure anymore. Can't, cause we don't seem to see any of these things on the same wavelength. And really what, what this kind of uh, social commentator was getting at is that it doesn't matter who you're married to, at some point you come up against the reality that you are not perfect they are not perfect. You cannot simply love them for who they are because it drives you crazy at times, nor can they love you for who you are. And it is in that place, it is in the frustration of two personalities coming together that we go back to the scripture, that we go back to Genesis 1, and we say, God, what did you intend? Because how we are living is different from that. Why did he make it that two flesh become one? Why did he make it that it is a covenantal relationship? Why did he intend for sexual intimacy to be experienced in that bond? Well, because as the creator, if, if he is the creator, I should say, and we were made by his design And if we are image bearers, i.e., we reflect God, here and now, not in the future, here and now, you are a reflection of the reality of God. And if, as so, we've come out of his beautiful mind, we are therefore made to reflect a Trinitarian community, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, which is a unity, when you read the text, of self-giving, other-centered love. And the idea for marriage begins there. It begins in the very nature of God, a union of self-giving, other-centered love. Marriage is the embodied covenant of that. It's where I willingly choose to constrain my body and my soul and I bind my life to another, where I covenant myself to someone as my creator did with me. It's where I say to another human being, no matter what, sickness, health, I give myself to you. No matter what, loss of jobs, loss of income, loss of dreams, I give myself to you. And I think more than ever, friends, we need this stunning and profound and beautiful revelation of what marriage can be. If you are a millennial in the room, which is me, uh, 38, 39 and under, our marriage rates are the lowest ever, meaning first time people getting married, it's at 26%. And if the 50-50 ratio is right in terms of kind of divorce and remarriage, that means 13% of millennials will be married. That's it. Now, I get it. Most of us are children of the kind of baby boomers or otherwise known as the me generation. And I read this this week in a Harvard study. It was in that generation, so our parents, where the term of no-fault divorce was coined. Um, They still to this day hold the highest divorce rate in modern history. So these are our example setters. These are perhaps our parents. These are the homes we grew up in. And the divorce rate for the baby boomers, interestingly, it keeps rising. So for those over 50, the divorce rate doubles. And for those over 65 within that demographic, it triples. Meaning, and this was the number I read that really blew my mind, 109% of baby boomers over 65 get divorced. What does that mean? It means that more people are getting remarried and divorced and remarried and divorced. That's why you have a number that's over 100, 109%. Those are the people that, that, that preceded the way for us. And we wonder why marriage is at an all-time low and distrust is at an all-time high. I read a recent Harvard study um, where it, it kind of surveyed Millennials and Gen Zs and it asked them how much they trust um, the kind of 10 primary institutions, uh, government, banks, you know, media, 10 things. And between 60 and 88% of the demographic said they distrust those 10 leading institutions. And so to summarize, we live in an era where families are broken, monogamy has failed us, we don't and we can't trust the most fundamental institutions of our society. Oh, and we are products of the enlightenment, which among other things has taught us emotionally and mentally that the self has to be put first in all situations. It's what they call an egocentric operating system, i.e., my happiness, my fulfillment, my satisfaction is paramount. And the virtue of a person or a thing can be determined by whether they increase or decrease my personal happiness. You following me? So essentially, we are living in an era where we are not only conditioned by our experience, but we are seemingly justified in a self-seeking, self self-serving approach to love and marriage. So, what do we do with divorce and marriage? What do we do when we live right now between divine accommodation and divine intent? What do we do when we feel the pull between what God intended and the reality of the world we live in? We are not perfect beings. So how do we live in God's perfect will? Well, we look no further than the covenant God made to us. Did you know that the entire Bible is a story of a perfect bridegroom pursuing his less than perfect bride from start to finish? It is a narrative of a god who said i am going to covenant myself to you no matter what and god demonstrates this over and over again he forgives and he forgives and he forgives and he pursues and he seeks out and he builds up and he loves and he offers grace and he extends mercy and he demonstrates by his very sacrifice what it means to commit yourself to someone utterly and completely he demonstrates it even unto death redemptive marriages friends can mirror this Two people not perfect who commit completely to one another. Two people who forgive and then forgive again and then again and then again. Two people who give grace when there has been failure. Two people who offer kindness instead of anger. Two people who will sacrifice for one another, who will lay down their lives for one another. I'm willing to love you even when I don't feel like you are loving me two imperfect people who, according to Jesus, can still be images of a faithful God here on earth. Almost done. Tim Keller in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, writes, When over the years someone has seen you at your worst and knows you with all your strengths and flaws, yet commits him or herself to you wholly, it is a consummate experience. To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear, but to be fully known and truly loved, well, it's a lot like being loved by God and it's what we need more than anything because it liberates us from pretense It humbles out of us our self-righteousness, and it fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw us. Marriage is this gift, friends, to be fully known and truly loved. Marriage is also a sign. It is a picture of what God intended. It is a picture of his love for us that forever is possible, that covenant can be held, can be sustained, and in doing so, marriage becomes a testament and a beacon of hope to the world around us. As we come to an end, I I do want to acknowledge Jesus' closing statements in this passage to his disciples. Notice he didn't say what he said at the end about marriage and divorce, remarriage and divorce, to the broader crowds. It was only when his disciples pushed him later that he said that. And it comes across really black and white. It comes across really intense. I wrestled with it this week. And and, and it raises all sorts of questions. Is Jesus being hyperbolic, uh, like he was in the verses we just read last week? You know, if your arm causes you to sin, cut it off. We don't take that literally. Is this literal? What about Matthew's account of the story says, well, if there's been unfaithfulness, then it's different. Paul writes that if there's been abandonment, there seems to be room for divorce. What about abuse? There's so many questions when it comes to this conversation. Let me say two things one the church historically has had four different perspectives on what we do with the passage like this i'm not going to go into them now but in discussion with the leaders we at genesis believe that every person rather than every church or institution every person has to find a place of grace and faith in regards to divorce and remarriage grace because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The scripture says it, I will say it again, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and faith because we believe in redemption and God's immense capacity, immense, immense capacity to bring resurrection in even the most darkest circumstances. Resurrection is fundamentally, can I begin again? Yes, you can, because Jesus was raised from the dead. Jesus seems to say that only a hardness of heart is ultimately what what cannot be bypassed, i.e., if the two people choose and are willing to set aside differences, addiction, sickness, whatever it may be, and commit to the long, hard journey of giving themselves to someone else. If there is grace and faith, he can do amazing things. But friends, that is a a decision and a wrestle for each and every one of us individually, and we are not standing here with a, a line in the sand. I've seen the power of God's work and resurrection in my own family. I've seen with an aunt and uncle and my grandparents, my grandpa struggled with addiction for decades. And my grandma believed in under God that she needed to stay with him. And I look at them now, God has worked beautiful things. My grandpa is saved and loves Jesus and they've been married 60 years. And they are a testament that if you have the grace and faith to stand with someone, it is utterly possible. But as we close, I want to say we hold in tension the reality of the world that we live and the divine intention of God, and we hold it under a banner of grace and faith. But my hope for this evening and why I wanted to press in is, is that we would follow the way of Jesus. What did Jesus do? He said, let's go back to the beginning. Let's look at love in the light of covenant-keeping God. Friends, never lose sight of what marriage was created to be. Those of you who are dreaming about that day to come, it begins here, it begins with God's view of covenant, of divine intention, and it's beautiful, and it's safe, and it's full of peace, and it is a sign for all of mankind, and that is what I hope lingers in your mind this evening, that we serve a God who demonstrated the profound and beautiful reality of what it means to be covenanted to us. Can we pray together? Chris is gonna lead a response in a second, but yeah, this is, as I said at the beginning, I'll say it again, this is weighty stuff. This is deep and personal. And I just wanna say if there was, Holy Spirit, we we submit everything that was spoken, everything that was taught to you this evening. May your truth find place and may seeds be planted. But whatever was not of you we we I submit right now, heavenly Father, that your good and perfect and pleasing will would be resonant this evening. That we would live under grace and faith with hope that covenant is possible. That commitment is beautiful. And that we can live as ambassadors of a promise that you first gave to us. In Jesus' name.